Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us again. This feels like a very special edition of the podcast because with no midweek show and two long weeks since we last spoke to you, this is kind of a reunion of sorts. Us with you, us with each other, and all of us with the Premier League. And how did our favorite circuit welcome us back? Well, by overturning the top of its table. Down go Manchester City and Arsenal, leaving Manchester United second and, wait for it, Leicester City is at the top of the table, with Jamie Vardy etching his name in the record books. Elsewhere, Spurs continue to climb, Everton compounded Villa's woes, and Chelsea is back in the win column. To talk about that, I want to bring in my co-host, Lawrence McKenna. Karthik Krishnayar hopefully is going to be joining us a little later, but Lawrence, let's get down to business this week, although I'm going to put off Manchester City-Liverpool talk for a moment because I want to ask you... When I woke up on Saturday, I saw three shocking results. I want to know which one was most shocking to you. Of course, there was Liverpool's dominant performance at the Etihad, but there was also West Brom beating Arsenal, and then Stoke getting a surprise win at St. Mary's. Which one of those do you think was the most surprising result? I like that you and I woke up at the same time. Um, (laughs) The most surprise... That's interesting. Very interesting. I'm going to say... West obviously West Brom Arsenal I think is is the biggest one. Mm-hmm. Um, although although the, the only reason it doesn't come as a surprise is because of Tony Pulis, right? Um, okay. can, maybe I'm going to say actually Everton beating Villa four nil. Hmm, one that wasn't even on my list. Yeah, that, I guess. Yeah. I guess that's going to be an interesting conversation because in addition to how good can Everton be, we're always talking about whether they're going to make Europe, or some people are talking about whether they can challenge for the top four. We kind of have to start talking about how bad Aston Villa can be. Uh, yeah. Names like Darby and Sunderland now need to come into this conversation if they don't turn it around. Let's start at the other end of the table. Manchester City came into the weekend first place, and they had a what was the most anticipated fixture of the weekend ahead of them, Liverpool's visit to the Etihad. Liverpool coming off, I think we all forgot that they're coming off a defeat to Crystal Palace. Uh, and we forgot about that even more after Liverpool's 4-1 to victory over Manchester City. Lawrence, this was a game that I think 4-1 really flattered Manchester City. Three really good saves by Joe Hart on essentially point-blank uh, opportunities for Liverpool. Left this score specifically. Yeah. Firmino, Benteke had that one late. Uh, it was, I guess the key question here is, was Manchester City on their own terrible or did Liverpool force them to be terrible? Uh, Li- Liverpool forced them into making mistakes, obviously, which is exactly what Liverpool's game is in this one. Um, 
you know what? I don't think that City were as terrible as people say. They still created chances. And they if they'd have put a few away, they, I mean, they, they had enough chances to make it three all um, at one point. And then Liverpool, you know, managed to get ahead. That was what's so remarkable to me because with 10 minutes left in this game, a match that had been dominated by Liverpool until in, in terms of opportunities, City was one goal away from making it 3-2 and making yeah. it a game. I mean, they had yeah. no business being in that situation. So for all of the praise that Liverpool has earned over the last 40 hours, well-deserved praise, and I'm sure we're going to heap a lot on them, Manchester City was still within within striking distance in this one. Yeah, and I mean, obviously with, with such a great side, then you're always going to say they'll be within uh, touching distance of Liverpool at 3-0 up. Maybe 4-0 would have made it difficult um but i think the point would also be with liverpool then they have to look at how vulnerable they looked at the back at times um and how maybe the the problem with the longevity of playing this tactic is that sometimes you're going to find that teams aren't always as susceptible or open as city played um and city played themselves in so much trouble in this game not only from the way they set up but also the way that the players reacted to how liverpool hounded them there's a balancing act we have to do here so let's just straight up divide our time let's talk about city first let's get the kind of negative out of the way and then let's talk about liverpool and let's let's try to give liverpool their due uh, okay. But we, in order to do that, let's segregate the city talk because a lot of changes. They're still dealing with a number of injuries to the companies and the Silvas of the world that seem to become more important. Vincent Company might be the most important player in this title race this season, Lawrence, because every time he is out, Manchester City's defense looks terrible. Yeah, but then why drop Otamendi? I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sure Kartik's going to have a. Um, yeah, the logic uh, there was the that. Play, the players that played during the international break that had to travel back from South America didn't play, which is also why Zabaleta was on the bench and Fernandinho was dropped. But of course, every City fan is looking at this performance and saying, "You just can't, don't have the luxury of doing that when you're putting out a team that is starting Mangala and Dimichelis in central defense, and that central defense looked." I suppose you could say predictably bad based on the other times we've seen those players play together this season. Yeah, it just didn't look like a very uh, cohesive back four. You'd also say that the, the not not having Fernandinho just in front of them there may be one of City's better uh, players or more, yeah. more well-rounded players this season. Probably didn't serve him very well. Uh, and then to take Yaya Torre off, I think broke down a lot of what City was doing well by the time that they were they were at that point. And then obviously Aguero went off and Liverpool pretty much cruised to a form victory by by that point. Um but I, I guess that would be the point is that actually when when Liverpool pressured City, then it showed a lot of their ineptitude, but it didn't take away from some of City's qualities. I, I agree with that. You know, you mentioned Yaya Toure, another player that was on the team sheet but didn't seem to show up. Uh, Bakary Sanya, we saw in that first goal. You just You just can't let at that level of professional soccer... A player come up behind you, strip the ball from you, and take it the other way. But why? Why are we talking about this? I understand the kind of the tactical side of it, and mm-hmm. you know the way, the way that City were outplayed, the Gagan pressing, the idea that Liverpool were looking to force mistakes. But why then uh, have City not looked to play a much more direct tactic around that when we know that there are deficiencies in the way that sometimes Klopp's football plays out if you play it in a certain way. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think just all around, it seemed like too many changes, too much optimism with those changes in terms of the tactic. Like you're saying, maybe they could have had more of a direct route. But then again, with Boney out, they only have Aguero as a healthy striker. Uh, and maybe Pellegrini just didn't want to change up things too much. You, it, 
it's really difficult for me to blame Pellegrini for not foreseeing City was going to be this bad because nobody thought they were going to be this bad. I mean, this was this was a performance that they would have gotten eliminated from the League Cup against a League Two side. They were just that bad at the You back. know what? I, I, I think that against the League Two side, they put one of those opportunities in. I think Sterling created that opportunity. Um, I also think that City maybe see... Obviously, the good. I suppose the thing for Liverpool is, um, and there was a lovely line. I can't remember which. I think it was by. It, it, it was whoever, uh, Jonathan Northcroft, uh, Northcroft for the the Times. I think it was, and he he basically said, um, for once the managers were reflected on the pitch, hmm. and Klopp was so animated, and luster on the side was Pellegrini, and that was the. The, the same out on the pitch mm-hmm. and I think that that's part of the problem when we're looking at the way that both Liverpool and City played was that for me I think City still showed aspects of how they can be good but the reasons that they're bad and Liverpool showed how they can be good but also the reasons that they're bad and <laughs> Liverpool's, put it. Liverpool's reasons that they are bad is that they have momentary lapses in concentration Milner's back pass which almost revealed Liverpool for you know a, a much more vulnerable underbelly kind of side um, and would have undone a lot of hard work and good work, which I think ultimately undid a lot of what Rogers. The, the same problem was that, that Rogers f- suffered basically, which was we're doing all this hard work, but there doesn't seem to be paying off. Mm. Um, and then also the, the fact that Liverpool did just look vulnerable at the back, and you know there were times when Milner was coming, have, having to come back to defend. Klein was blindsided at least twice by Sterling, um, and. The fact is Aguero picked it up, and the first chance that he got was in the back of the net. Yeah, a pretty poor pass by Skirtle there to start that play. Yeah, although you, yeah, you sort of think, well, how often is a player going to jump up and get his head in front of it like that? But I, I see what you mean. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things before we move on to Liverpool. Uh, actually, I wanted to mention that. I thought Moreno had one of his best games in a Liverpool uh, shirt. But yes. it's much possession. Uh, although that's, that's a weird phrase to use. Yes. Because um, <laughs> that's, that's ranking him against some games where he's been. Yeah, the bar, the bar wasn't excessively high with yeah. that standard I set there. But, you know, as much uh, possession as City had in the first half, I think they had about 65% possession. Liverpool was basically pressing them into some back passing and then falling back into their banks of four and then letting City slowly build up, uh, really disrupting their game that way. But it just seemed like a game where da- David Silva was particularly missed for that reason. You ha- can have a talented player like Kevin De Bruyne in the middle of your team and you'll be better off again than most teams in the world. But David Silva is the player that you want unlocking a team when they're settled into their defensive shape. And they, they really it, seem to miss it, it. Isn't it incredible, though, how um, little we're mentioning City's possession in this game and, and also how little they made of that possession? I don't think that's really incredible. I think that's part of uh, what we have to give Liverpool credit for. What I think is incredible is that the punditry and analysis around Liverpool right now is very basic. We hear a lot about tempo. Yes. We hear a lot about yeah. pressing, uh, pre- as if all pressing is the same, and as if uh, just by having these intense moments, which is what the the Gigan style pressing is, that you're inherently dictating tempo. Liverpool did dictate tempo, but in the way we just described, they forced City to slow the game down by having that high, that pressing that forced them into bad passes. And as we saw on the one goal that Firmino created for Coutinho, some bad turnovers too. But if, I, I think that's more about received knowledge, though, at the moment within the league, don't you? I feel like it's what Pochettino's building, what um, other managers who build with, not possession, but build with pressing do. Yeah. Um, I think and, it's more about we sort of draw words. from that of well we'll put a little bit of possession in there and then we'll put some of this in and yes. and then we sort of have this kind of 
yes, Liverpool are green right now. Their aura is green. Yeah. City's aura is red. You know? Yeah, I think I think they're just buzzwords that people use and they just kind of mix them up as if they were magnets on a refrigerator and then pretty soon you have a soundbite that you can use on air. So I think Yes, who are you Michael Cox? <laughs> I think I, no, I'm Michael actually had some good analysis like on it. the Guardian, but Yeah, that's what I'm joking. Yeah. yeah. Um let's let's talk about uh, Liverpool now because we've spent a lot of time talking about City. We've spent some time talking about Liverpool too, but I think we really saw that front four for Liverpool. Not even the front four because Milner's playing this role where he's shifting around quite a bit, but Lalana, Coutinho, Firmino had his best game as a Liverpool player. I thought they it's were just they they were just so good, and they really what you, what you have with Liverpool right now is a team that if you are not at your best, you are going to get destroyed. And Liverpool put themselves in a situation to take advantage of every single City weakness. I also think it it, it was um, I, th- I think it was just good to see that the players wanted to go out there and wanted to play in this way. The, it, that's why I was talking about the, the embodiment of, in the way that Jonathan Northcroft was, the, in the embodiment of what their manager was out there. They looked like they were just enjoying it. Yes. And, and to be able to enjoy such a high-pressure situation and almost like your game face to be, this is going to be really good fun, guys. Let's go do it, is a really great... I mean, that must be such a great feeling to have it as a player, but also a great thing to watch as a fan to see the players enjoying their football. Um, because... You know, there's an awful lot of people who make things incredibly serious. And the, the main narrative building up to this was, and I think what Jurgen Klopp was helped by the fact he's only been there for a month. So he never really managed Sterling and you know, didn't know very much about that. But, he, you know, people were saying, do you think this is going to affect the game, et cetera, et cetera. And he kind of said, he's a great player, but we also have some great players here and sort of brushed it to one side. Mm-hmm. And it just took, it almost took away from some of the impetus of the narrative that people were looking to build. And I just think he's great at killing stories dead in the water and building his own. I, I completely he, agree with you. You know, yeah. we talked a lot about the fit between Klopp and this squad. And we kind of went through every player and, and wondered about Firmino and Coutinho. And I, I thought that Lalana and Emery Chan would both be greatly benefited by Klopp, but also wondered about the first two. And I have to admit, the one thing I really underestimated is the thing that you just alluded to, how the collective spirit and the positivity and the knowledge that the people around you are going to be working as hard as you and thereby reward the work that you put into it. I completely underestimated that effect because I look at how Coutinho is playing and I look at how Firmino is playing. And now I just think I was wrong about wondering, oh, Firmino doesn't seem to, uh, not Firmino, but Coutinho doesn't seem to respond quickly when he loses the ball. So I wonder how he's going to fit in with the Gengen press. I don't know that he's doing a great job of that, but there are these moments where you just see the collective surge together, knowing that one person's work is going to pay off for opportunities. And I just think that defined the whole game on Saturday. Yeah, and I think, uh, uh, though that does then leave Liverpool open to other issues, I'd say. And I think that's the difference maybe between Liverpool and Spurs at the moment, if you look at the way that Spurs... And that's where one definition of the difference between Gagan pressing and the kind of pressing that Spurs do you'll probably see the difference in um, how managers like to, um, you know, tweak pressing basically and say, this is how we're going to do it. I think Mm -hmm. Liverpool's gig and pressing is not similar to Spurs, but they both like to win it um, fairly high at the pitch and then, you know, basically turn that into a goal. And that's why Harry Kane is so effective sometimes for Spurs. But the point would be with Liverpool is that they, they won it back. They were dogged. Not only that, but they had players then because obviously you can have that personnel, but then there are players like Firmino and Coutinho who are just having great fun with the ball as well. And I think Lalana is just loving being part of that front line. Lalana's <laughs> almost a Sterling 
of um you remember when there was SAS mm-hmm. now it feels similar with Lalana kind of in the middle of that there was one point where the ball was played from either Coutinho to Firmino I think it was but it was Coutinho to Lalana and Lalana just ran over the ball mm-hmm. and it just kept going to Firmino and you just thought that that's that's going to be another great goal mm-hmm. And it, it was incre- it was great to watch. Lalana had an interview with a NBC here in the United States where he said something that jumped out to me as kind of weird. But they asked him to comment on what Klopp has done to the locker room, and he said, "You know, we all we are playing so hard, and we love him, and he's a manager that you that you want to die for." It's like, whoa, slow down there, Adam. But yeah. at the same time, it is indicative of just the spirit that Klopp has injected in the team, and it, it's resulted in a Liverpool that just continues to improve. Liverpool continues to improve, and City was surprisingly terrible, but that wasn't the only surprise of the nine-match weekend, one that started on Saturday at Vicarage Road, where Manchester United managed the absences of Wayne Rooney and Anthony Martial with two goals, one a late Bashish Feinsteiger shot pushed across the line by Troy Deeney. The Red Devils went on to a 2-1 victory at Watford. Chelsea got a rare goal from Diego Costa and an even rarer clean sheet as they shut out Norwich City at Stamford Bridge 1-0. Two goals from Romelu Lukaku pushed the Toffee striker to 9 for the season as Everton beat Aston Villa 4-0. Jamie Vardy tied Ruud van Nistelrooy's records, scoring in his 10th straight appearance as Leicester won at Newcastle 3-0. Stoke got an early goal from Bojan Kerkic and a clean sheet as the Potters pulled off the upset at Southampton 1-0. Swansea and Bournemouth shared four first-half goals with the 2-2 final, allowing the Cherries to take a needed point out of the Liberty Stadium. And at West Brom, a Mikel Arteta own goal and a slip on a penalty try from Santi Cazola gave the Baggies a 2-1 upset over Arsenal. On Sunday, Tottenham's rise continued with two goals from Harry Kane, leading Spurs to a 4-1 win over West Ham. That win puts Mauricio Pochettino's team on the edge of the top four. There are 24 points through 13 rounds, too short of fourth place Arsenal. Manchester City leaders coming into the weekend are now third, one point behind rival United, with Leicester City on 28 points sitting at the top of the table. United is at the King Power Stadium next week, an unexpected one versus two battle. The relegation race looks the same with Bournemouth, Sunderland, and Aston Villa occupying the bottom spots ahead of the Black Hats' Monday trip to Crystal Palace. We're now going to take a break and recruit for segment number two, when we'll talk about the rest of the matches at the top of the table, United's win at Watford, Arsenal's slip at West Brom, and of course, Leicester City's thumping of Newcastle. Welcome back, everybody. Richard Farley here with Lawrence McKenna. We've talked out the next three games that we want to talk about, the teams at the top of the table. And let's start at the top of the table. Leicester City, Lawrence, 3-0 victory over Newcastle. Let's start with Jamie Vardy. This is a historic accomplishment. Ten appearances in a row now. uh, Tying the Premier League record, a record that Ruud van Nistelrooy set twice. That's some perspective right there. Ruud van Nistelrooy is one of the ultimate goal-scoring machines of the Premier League era, and now Jamie Vardy's name is next to his in the record book. Yeah, I mean, Ruben Nistori <laughs> has, has is a slight... It, it is there, Lawrence. You're, you're I mean, talking... yeah. Do you ever really go to the record books, though? I mean, how uh, is, often is do you really break the record, record books out? Yeah. yeah. 
I don't know. I would love it if there is. If there was a huge ceremony, every time something like this happens, you bl- blow the dust off the books, slap it open, because, of course, it's oversized and it's actual parchment that it's there. Uh, oh, it is for records, Richard. Yes. You have the quill and the, the, the ink you have to dip it into. It, an yeah. old man that kind of looks like a hobbit comes out and writes the name in there. Yeah. But enough about Leicester City's manager. Um, what about Jamie Vardy um, and the way that he's playing? I, I feel like uh, Jamie is not i i don't i don't want to say it's fortunate you create your own luck but he it's good that he's starting i also feel like if there was another player starting we may see similar results considering the changes that were made later on in this game which also yielded similar moves and similar situations let me ask you about this because i think this is where we can either identify our hypocrisy or mm-hmm. we can uh, shed some light on why we seem a little bit inconsistent. Because for me, I watch this weekend's action, and I also look at Harry Kane and Romelu Lukaku, two very good players. But I don't necessarily consider them elite strikers. I consider them currently benefiting from a lot of good work that's going on around them. And I would put Jamie Vardy in that category, too. But then when we criticize Wayne Rooney or we criticize Diego Costa, we put it on their shoulders and not blame the people around them. On the surface, that seems a little bit inconsistent, but isn't there a part of you that that feels right also? Well, it's also partly the system those guys play in mm-hmm. um, and the emphasis which maybe is put or brought to that player by their own demeanor or the way that they act. One thing I would say about Romelu Lukaku is he's one of uh, only five players now. He's the fifth to reach 50 goals under the age of 23. Mm-hmm. Which, again, Wayne Rooney and Cristiano record, Ronaldo on that list. Mm. And I would say Wayne Rooney, our criticism has largely been based on the fact that he was getting chances and he wasn't converting them. Costa seems like somebody that's kind of in this in-between ground. But Jamie Vardy, of course, a great accomplishment and a great accomplishment for Leicester to be top of the table at this point in the season. That says something about the Premier League. But I, I think it says more about Leicester, Lawrence. The overriding question is how long this will last. But let's put that off for a couple minutes and just talk about the present because a 3-0 victory, albeit at Newcastle, this is the type of game where if this were another team, a Arsenal or Manchester United, we would say they took care of business and this is what a champion should do in these situations. Well, Leicester took care of business, and this is what a champion should do in these situations. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> but that doesn't fit the that doesn't fit narrative, Richard. Uh, narrative doesn't work that way. Hmm. Well, what's the narrative then around Leicester? Because we have narrative to... is they're young, they're plucky. Um, they're, they're the guys who are misfits at so, other clubs. So when do uh, we they, change that? At what point do we change that? Can we just like decide on a number now? Is it we change rounds? that when Ipswich, the story of Ipswich expires from mm-hmm. a few seasons ago? Because you remember Ipswich, they got I think they got to like sixth one season, and then the season after that, after this lovely run, they went down and because if, yeah. the pressure of that and the overall weight of all those games took them down with it. And in fairness, we. We hold on to narratives regarding Arsenal for years. Manchester City, we still have these lingering narratives about Pellegrini, about how they go through these spells each season where it doesn't seem like they have the same kind of overall intensity that a Mourinho team might have. And before he retired, we always had narratives around Alex Ferguson about no matter how bad Manchester United might look in a given route against Manchester City, they're going to be in this title race. So maybe it is unfair to expect 13 matches to change what we think about Leicester City. But right now, Lawrence, I guess the scary thing is not only do they keep scoring goals, I think they have two clean sheets in their last three matches. 
Yeah, which is a huge achievement considering the personnel in that back line. Um, and maybe that some people would have assumed that those kind of guys are going to leak more goals. I mean, Robert Huth is at the centre of that. Um, and granted, I actually think the people that he has around him and the young goalkeeper that he has just behind that are, are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that they're young. I think they're willing to be shaped. And I think that actually it's a really shrewd or astute signing in taking Robert Huth because uh, it's almost like playing Moneyball, if you like, mm. um, to some extent. I mean, you know, you look you look throughout that team and you could probably name one player in each of those sections which looks Moneyball. Yeah, a lot of uh, value propositions there. Yeah, especially with, you know, the likes of Albrighton, etc. Absolutely. Well, Leicester's at the top of the table now. One of the teams that was at the top of the table coming into the weekend was Arsenal, and a lot of people are going to deride their 2-1 to one loss at West Brom. Lawrence, I think it would be very hypocritical of us to continue railing on Arsenal when when other teams have these kind of uh, anomalous performances. You know, when there's an own goal or one of your best players' plant foot slips on a late penalty, you give them a pass. And I, I'm inclined to give Arsenal a pass for this one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also because I think it looked like the kind of day where all, all Arsenal were really waiting for was something to go their way Mm -hmm. uh and it it would have changed the overall um complexion of the game because actually the scoreline was much closer than uh than uh than basically arsenal i believe probably believed uh you know we we also look at the way that the formation was set out Mm -hmm. Uh, you'd say where alexis sanchez looked like he just had guys constantly swarming around him trying to stop the ball from uh, going anywhere near an important zone for Alexi Sanchez, but also the fact that then we saw Coquelin, um go off. I- I'll be interested to see how that affects Arsenal overall this season. Yeah, I think this Especially, was... was it three months? That's what Leah Keep is reporting right now. I don't know if we have official word, but it looks like it's going to be months, not weeks. And I think this was the one fear that a lot of people had identified with Arsenal. Not so much for Coquelin, although he he's certainly a very quality player and a good option, and they're they're using him exactly as you'd want a player of that skill set to be used. But it's more for the lack of options there. So you're left wondering: Can Arsenal survive these next six weeks before they can go out and buy a player? And if they go out and buy a player, will Arsene Wenger do something other than bring in another Kim Schalstrom, who ended up coming in and from Lyon on loan that one window and wasn't able to play until April? I mean to be yeah, but I mean to be fair, I also really like Kim. So I would have loved to see him succeed in the Premier League. It would have been nice um, to see a couple of those set pieces. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, you know, but he almost he just it was unfortunate there. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the, at, at the same time, you know, I think Cazorla's got more than enough to be able to alongside. I, I would love. I want to see a, a partnership between him and Arteta hmm. uh, begin to bloom. I'd love that. Yeah, that'll be very interesting. It kind of reminds me of uh, the partnership that Real Madrid had this weekend with Modric and uh, Kroos, but we'll talk about that a little bit. And in that went segment. so, oh, right. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, the one thing you kind of hinted on that I, I think we should come back to is over the last few weeks, we had been wondering whether Arsenal's propensity to dominate in bursts. We see these 20, 22-minute spans where they score three goals at a time. We were wondering if that could come back to hurt them because does that mean a team just has to avoid those bursts? And Maybe to a certain extent that happened this weekend. Yeah, maybe not get lulled into those bursts um, because I think other teams do. You know, they're especially higher up the table because there there's a bit of rhythm there, um, a, a different kind of rhythm, if you like. And some teams have to play into that in order to play their game. 
Um, whereas then there's someone like a Pulis team who Arsenal sort of go, whereas Pulis teams sort of just go, does that make sense? So that was very annoying noise. And yeah, exactly. And they, uh, I just think it's because it's coming out of my mouth. But the, the point with that was that more that they have that consistency and they almost just don't get sucked into the up and down of the game, if you like. Hmm. Well, just like we have those ongoing questions with Arsenal, one of the ongoing questions we have with Manchester United is regarding their striker situation. Uh, hmm. This weekend, both Anthony Martial and Wayne Rooney were out. Martial with an ankle injury, Rooney with illness. And the interesting thing is Memphis brought back into the team after a long time on the sidelines, goes into that central striking role, uh, plays it very well on their first goal. And now Manchester United have yet another option that people are going to allude to when they talk about this Wayne Rooney conundrum. And in that way, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. One edge of it, you got a, a lead and a crucial goal in what was eventually three points on the road at Watford. The other edge of it is you're running out of excuses to keep playing Wayne Rooney. Well, the problem would be the counter to that, Richard, is you uh, essentially have players of the same ilk, Memphis, uh, Martial, maybe even Lingard, young, hungry goal-getters, essentially, but still not of the, in inverted commas, ilk or indeed playing type of Wayne Rooney. And that's the problem for Wayne Rooney. He doesn't really have anyone within that side who challenges the kind of play and the kind of, in inverted commas, tenacity that someone like him will bring to a side in that way and so uh, there's almost a mystique or a a belief around around Wayne Rooney that none of those other players have and I think it was two weeks ago we saw Ander Herrera allude to that that the leadership that he has on the training field and on the field these are all things that his teammates and clearly his coach find important. So maybe there's something that we're missing in the analysis here because we really must be, because I don't see any of that. Right. You don't I've see it in his body language. You don't see ever anything. seen it. Yes. So um, clearly we're missing something because I think it would be a little bit egotistical of us to suggest that we're smarter than Louis van Hall. But one thing we are missing is answers as to why this selection keeps happening. Although then th- there were, uh, put it this way, when we've seen certain players leave clubs, in the past, we've seen a huge weight lifted from those around them who thought that that weight was actually something positive at the time. Mm, that's a good point. And you, you think back to the policies that were so successful under Alex Ferguson, constantly integrating the energy from young players. And Rooney continuing to take minutes really takes away from those three young players that you just cited. Uh, with Manchester United, we t- I mentioned Louis van Hall. we're always going back to these narratives and analytical points. The thing that lingers with me with Manchester United, and we saw it last year, Manchester United was so much better in late winter and spring than they were in the fall. I still get the feeling, Lawrence, that that's what we're looking at here with United. And the fact that they're in second place, not only in second place, but above all the other teams that we Mm -hmm. thought were going to be title contenders, that has to be very worrisome for Manuel Mm -hmm. Pellegrini and Arsene Wenger. Yes, certainly so, especially considering that United uh, are are the kind of side now who will really enjoy frustrating uh, the the likes of Manuel (laughs) Pellegrini and Arsene Wenger. Um, And I think that's part of it is they've also, because it's almost like Lumangal is sort of going, right, we'll do these games and we'll play boring here, but you just wait until we play you and then we'll play the way that I'm I'm looking forward to, which will be some counter-attacking. It'll be a little bit of me employing Depay in such a way where, you know, we can counter to him or does it go to Lingard 
or does it go to Mata? I think he realizes what his arsenal is and he deploys it very well. Um, but then there's times where he depl- it's almost like he wants to dull it a little bit and then uh, you know r- raise the saturation a little bit when they come up against sides like Arsenal. Mm. Everybody, we're going to take our second break right now. We're going to get Kartik Krishnayer in here, talk a little bit more about Manchester City, Liverpool, talk a little bit about El Clasico, and then we're going to transition to talking about what was a subtly scary support Uh, performance this weekend from Tottenham Hotspur. Stick with us. This is the World Soccer Talk podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Kartik Krishnayer is joining Lawrence McKenna and myself, and we're going to talk about Spain here in a little bit, but Kartik, we can't bring you in on a weekend like this without getting your thoughts on Manchester City, their worst performance of the season. Um, Just what was going through your mind as you saw it unfold? Worst ever performance at the Etihad Stadium, by the way. Worst ever loss since mm. uh, City has relocated from Main Road. So, uh, historic low, an awful performance, a performance that even before that first goal, it, it didn't look right from the get-go. I, uh, there's been a lot of savaging of Pellegrini going on, and I, I was very disappointed with the performance. It was a terrible performance. In fact, the 4-1, uh, you guys have probably already had this conversation. Yeah, it, was, it flattered him. Right, the 4-1 Spurs scoreline, I think, flattered Spurs. They were the better team, but not 4-1 better. 4-1 Liverpool uh, win here, flattered City. Should have been 6-7-8-1. That's how bad it was. Joe Hart with some nice saves, uh, some other just uh, not necessarily clinical finishing from, from Liverpool attacking players. The thing that we have found time and again, Roberto Mancini learned this against Jurgen Klopp's Dortmund team, and also uh, Pellegrini has learned this against some teams that chose to, to press high against uh, Man City when Man City was open, and in, particularly in his first season, the first couple months before Pellegrini got used to the Premier League, is that you leave yourself susceptible, you leave yourself open. And if you have Yaya Torre, who does very little running, and you, at, at 32 you're not quite w- sure what you get in him uh, from game to game in a two-man midfield, and you're not set up to play on the counter, you're not set up to play with, especially when you've got De Bruyne, Navas, and Sterling in, in, in the same team. Maybe you, you, you play a little deeper. Mm. Mangala and Di Michaelis were poor. Don't get me wrong. But <laughs> you're you're flattering think, them there, by the way. Right, right, right. But, I'm, but, I'm, but I've got a, a caveat on this. I think they, didn't, they weren't afforded the kind of protection that they should have been in midfield or uh, from the fullback positions where Kolarov and Sonia oh, were terrible. Sonia was horrible. Sonia was terrible. And That's I the worst game I've is, ever uh, seen Bakary Sonia play. Yeah, and I, I, I said it was the worst game he's played since he came to City. Now that you mention it, yes, you're right. And maybe that means now that Zabaleta is training again, he will be back in the team soon. Uh, so Pellegrini did understand what had gone wrong in that first half, where it was 3-0, or it was 3-1, right, because of Aguero's goal, but right. should have been 4-5, 6, uh, 6-1. And did insert Delph and Fernandinho in the second half, uh, to, to kind of protect those uh, the, those center backs. But at that point, you're chasing the game, and there's no flow, there's no continuity to, to the play. And uh, it was just a very, very poor effort. I, I think the thing that we take away from this is, one, Liverpool can press high away from home with a guy like Firmino as a false nine. But I don't know that they can play that way at home, particularly against teams that are going to sit uh, deeper and not necessarily come out and, and, and be as open. So that's... Uh, that may be why Klopp's record is better away from home already with this Liverpool team than, than at home. And then the second point I would make is that I think Manchester City were in a position where if they win at, in Turin on Wednesday, they win a Champions League group and avoid Barcelona or Real Madrid or Bayern in the next round. 
And unfortunately, this isn't the way I think, but this is the way Soriano and the hierarchy are thinking. That's more important than the Premier League because Mm -hmm. of the, the repeated failures in Europe. I think... In spite of fans saying Pellegrini doesn't know what he's doing, he should be sacked, all of this nonsense. I think oh Pellegrini God. was pressured in, in thinking, okay, Odomendi has just come back from Argentina. Fernandinho has just come back from Brazil. Let's give these guys the day off. As it turns out, he couldn't give Fernandinho the day off because the performance was so poor and they put him in at halftime. They'll be ready for uh, Juventus. And I think that really was the takeaway. Firmino and Coutinho didn't play for Brazil this time, and they were fresh. Yeah, I can't believe people want Pellegrini sacked, but I guess I'm. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. These people don't know what they're talking well, about. Well, if, if, if he survived last spring, he's going to survive this. Um, let's let's shift gears and let's talk about the match that really always seems to captivate everybody's attentions these days. With so much television coverage, so much ubiquitous television coverage, the soccer world kind of stops when Real Madrid and Barcelona play. I think the whole, that's why the whole soccer world reacted so strongly to what was kind of similar to the Liverpool City game, Lawrence, in that you had one team that performed very well, and then you had one team that was just so poor that it almost becomes difficult to judge how good the other was. This was... One's this... apathy, though, isn't it? But, uh, apathy, which almost... I don't know. I mean, Kartik's probably better set to comment on City, but... The problem was it almost seemed like apathy. People are painting it as if it's apathy towards Benitez. And my problem is that I feel like Benitez has been made a fall guy for a number of people within this situation. Mm. Florentino Perez refuses to quit. Ronaldo clearly wants to make out as if Real Madrid have underserved him in the time that he was at Real Madrid. And there are other people within that squad who clearly realize that they were bought in the previous regimes when they would have been much more useful. And they're probably going to be used as four guys by Real Madrid. So everyone is yeah. trying to save face in this situation. And as always, it's the person who is the most blatantly honest, but also the most um, socially awkward who's losing out. And it's Rafa Benitez in this situation. And I just feel terribly sorry for the guy because he's finally got the dream job. He's a yeah. Madridista. He's, you know, he's clearly, a, he's one of, I'd say, one of the top five tactical coaches in the world and I, I just feel like he's underserved from every angle and it, re- it, 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 it was so infuriating to watch because with, when Ronaldo plays like that it's like watching Real Madrid play with 10 men and not only that but three or four of those guys are just coming off the back of an injury hmm. and you, ju- you just think like you know, if you want to talk about serving an institution or you want to talk about, I want to go to this great club and, and all the whatever you said when you left Manchester United about going to work for this great institution, then don't make it just lip service. Hmm. Because as far as I'm concerned, that's just paying lip service to an idea, which when it then doesn't serve you, you don't back it up. And it's just, it, it, it takes away from everything that that great movie of his has built him up to be. <laughs> Uh, for people who don't know, Real Madrid at home lost four to nothing to Barcelona in a match that could have been much worse. Uh, Kartik, what do your instincts tell you about the situation? There's going to be speculation all week as to how long, fair or not, Rafa Benitez will survive after a match like that. What what is your experience? What does your gut tell you about what's going on at Real Madrid? Well, they let Pellegrini get through the season in ten, even though they had deter- in the nine ten season, even though they had determined they were going to sack him. They let. Uh, Capello get through the season in the 06-07 season, then he came back and won the title, they still sacked him, but they they wanted to sack him earlier. So maybe he gets the season, but then there's the example of Bern Schuster coming off of winning the, uh, the La Liga title, 
getting off to a bad start and getting sacked and, and being out and losing badly in the Classico to the beginning of Pep's teams, you know, the, the first of Pep's teams. And that was a, uh, a sacking. Do you guys remember when it was? Was it November, December? It was soon after the Classico. Yeah, I think it was December so of 08. Yes. Okay. So, right. And as I said, that was Pep's first season. And we didn't realize how good Barcelona was going to be <laughs> that season and for the next couple of years. So there was some overreaction. So that's a precedent that maybe they follow. But I, I tend to think they may let Benitez ride out the season mm-hmm. and then sack him at the end of the year. Although he is probably dead man walking. Yeah. I, I, although I slightly feel like what should be, I, I feel like my suggestion of what should be done humbly, Florentino, would be uh, that. You need if if you want to bring in Rafa Benitez, and you want to build a culture at a club, then Rafa's probably the perfect one of the perfect people to do it because when he does get the right players, then he certainly has a culture which you can back up. But also that you should almost you should basically say, look, this is a transitional period. Ronaldo's transitioning out of the club. A number of other players are probably going to leave next summer. We want to leave behind the uh, Galactico idea and. We want to be able to bring more young guys through. Uh, there's n- there isn't really a better manager on the market that's available that's able to do that than Rafa Benitez. Well, here, here, here's what came up on Richard Key's show the other day. Richard Key's and so it said Red, no one I ever to validate it. a comment. <laughs> this is, right, this right, is a but, World uh, Soccer Talk podcast I, first, I, right I, now. <laughs> yeah. But why am I blanking? Why am I blanking out on the name of the, the previous president at uh, at Real Madrid? Uh, uh, he was on the show. Sure. Before Paris, in between the Paris stints, I don't. I can't believe I'm blanking out on this name. But anyway, he had said that he believes that they would go back for Mourinho. Yeah, I, I do remember that story making the rounds. There, there are three things that jumped out to me about this game, and very similar to with Manchester City, where you can point to Mangala and Sanya as just having these terrible performances. Varane and Danilo, and surprisingly, Tony Kroos. Tony Kroos was terrible. If Tony Kroos makes tackles in midfield that he's there to make on on those first two goals, then Barcelona they get to halftime scoreless, even despite that bad half. And it was just shocking how poor was it, Tony Kroos was. Was it Calderon who said that, Castle? Yeah, it was Calderon, of course. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, and he said it once on their show and then reiterated it when uh, another time when Keyes pressed him on him and said, well, last week you said uh, uh, they'd come in for Mourinho. He said, absolutely. They don't well, like to say that publicly, well, then, but they would. If Mourinho's sh- available, they will, they will bring him back. Yeah. <laughs> then your sh- well, short-termism is even more myopic than I thought it was possible to be. But based, based on the way we saw Rafa Benitez set up his team on Saturday, that was terrible. That was absolutely terrible. He's let... Cristiano Ronaldo do whatever he wants, which totally unbalances the formation, which makes that midfield that they have of Modric and Kroos even more susceptible to being overrun the way that they were. And then just stuff like starting Danilo over Carvajal has never made sense. But when I was watching the game, I was conscious of what you were talking about, Lawrence. This is Rafa Benitez's dream job. And the feeling that I had was just... I got into the college I wanted to get to out of high school. So when I got there, I was really excited. And then once I got there, there's these moments where you're just all alone and you realize, okay, I've got here. Now what do I do with it? And It's also partly that there are moments where you feel like there are other people around who are sort of going, I've got my dreams too. And those people are trying to fulfill their own dreams. But you're going, wait a minute, like if we all pull together – but they go, no, 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 that's not the way the real world works, Rafa. Right. And that's partly, that was always the problem with Benitez, was that his man management let down what tactics he was trying to implement. But I think in, so, I think in this case, that might 
be that might perversely turn out to be something positive for him because the other thing I was reminded of was Mourinho's first Clasicos where they just got destroyed but what that ended up being was an excuse for Mourinho to implement a very cynical style that he is more familiar with he came into a Real Madrid where they were still under the illusion that they could play beautiful football and compete with Barcelona and once they got that out of their system they won the league the next year they won the the cup later that year and so this might be a wake-up call to the players who as was reported during the week don't want to buy into what Benitez is doing, that Benitez now may be able to go full steam ahead because, hey, this is how you wanted to play, and you were destroyed. You need to make some compromises with your style, before, guys. Before that, they were one of the unbeaten teams in Europe. Granted, they hadn't played a fantastic style. That was Kaylor Navas. Kaylor Navas but, has been having a spectacular year. But you And, and I yeah. agree with that, but you'd also say that, that you, there is still a point to be made there. Yes. That, you know, when... When they're healthy, you know, they're they still I just, very good. I just, I just feel like people don't want to fit any form of human narrative to Rafa Benitez or mm. any form of positivity to him. With other managers, it's, well, I mean, they're getting the best out of David Teja. That's, ma- that's fantastic man management. <laughs> Mourinho is doing pragmatic football. That's fantastic management. Yeah. It just doesn't make any, there's never any, uh, never any form of kind of uh, understanding exercise. Well, think- and it's, I think the one person that they have been saying that this year about is Casemiro in midfield, and they they could have used him yesterday. And I think Benitez yes, is certainly right. so. So I mean, yeah, and then you've got a number of players coming back up injury. Guys, sort of Premier League. Let's get back to the Premier League. We're going to do our players of the week, and we're going to try to talk about Tottenham in this segment. But let's do the players of the week first, and let's start with you, Lawrence. Really good question. Um, I'm I had quite a few nominees this week. Um, the the player that I ultimately settled on was Firmino, mm, with uh, good I cause. Think- yeah, his best game in Liverpool shirt so far. A lot of questions from previous Liverpool legends about him. A lot of people questioning whether um, the Brazilian could fit into the Premier League. Um, and I, I thought one of the best things was the combination play that he had with the other players. Um, he was part of what knitted that front line together. There were questions over if Liverpool start without Benteke, who's there, the centre of that front line. And I think that he was really complimented well by Coutinho and Lalana as well. And those three had a really lovely understanding. Not only that, but I think that um, it was nice. And I think one of you guys may end up picking this guy. But it was lovely to see the way that Firmino also looked back to the other players like James Milner and Emery Chan. Mm. Kartik. I am going to go to the blue half of Liverpool. Sorry, Lawrence. And pick yes. Ross Barkley, who is one of the Good. most frustrating players for me in the Premier League when he's not on or when he's injured but one of the, the most delightful, particularly among English players, to watch when he's on. His movement was so fluid in this game against Aston Villa. Yes, I know, they played Aston Villa. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But his movement was fluid. A lot of times I get frustrated with Barkley because tactically where he is doesn't make sense. But the way Martinez has highlighted him in these in, in these last few matches, uh, he's been had this kind of free free role side to side, but he's played off of Delafeu really well. He's played off of Kone really well. And he and Lukaku have, have created quite a combination. So if Barkley is fit and he continues to play at this level, I think Everton do have a shot at the top four. And maybe more importantly for our listeners, England should do well this summer. Hmm. Matt Jones had that post on our site about a month ago about Ross Barkley getting his confidence back. And debate how effective you think he is or not. But when he's confident and he's playing some of the passes like he did this weekend, it is incredibly joyful to watch. Uh, I'm going to evoke our... 
everlasting privilege with this award, not necessarily awarded to the player I think was the best this week, but my favorite player this week. And I'm going with Emery Chan. Uh, I think one of the things that I thought was so remarkable about this game is that Liverpool, in the moments whenever they wanted to, always seemed to have a numerical advantage. And that was Emery Chan. That was Emery Chan getting forward from what should be a deep role. It's a shuttling role. Or it was him getting wide to provide the extra outlet for the pass. It was just him being able to read the game and react to the game and making just such great decisions. And the reason I was so excited about it is that this this is kind of a force multiplier that Liverpool can use going forward. They have Lucas Leiva ingrained into the team again. He's going to be able to hold that spot back. When you have a player that, as he showed on Saturday, can be intelligent, can read the game, can jump into moments when they win the ball and the opposing defense is disorganized, that that really bodes well for what Jurgen Klopp is trying to do. So he wasn't the best player. He probably wasn't even one of the three or four best players for Liverpool, but he was my favorite player this weekend, Emery Chan. Uh, gentlemen, let's go back to another 4-1 performance this weekend. One that maybe was a little less surprising than Liverpool posting that score at the Etihad. Spurs defeating West Ham 4-1. West Ham certainly hasn't been playing like a team that would lose 4-1 matches this year. But Kartik, given how well Spurs have been playing pretty much ever since their loss at Old Trafford to open the season, it's not terribly surprising to, like they did against Manchester City earlier, see them explode on a team. No, it's not. I mean, I think Spurs are such a question mark for a lot of people because they have so many young players and so many English players. But this is what Pochettino was brought in to do. This is why, in spite of having a quick trigger in the past, Daniel Levy actually tolerated a lot of bad performances last season. A, a, a league finish, they ended up finishing fifth, but a league a campaign that wasn't as strong as the league campaign had been under AVB and maybe arguably not as strong even as the, the half a year under Sherwood. He was bloodletting players. He was bloodletting the Harry Canes, the Eric Dyers. He's found a role for Eric Dyer now. Uh, Deli Ali was a player that they had bought last season but weren't going to bring to the club till this year. They let him stay at MK Dons as they pushed promotion to the championship. And now you're beginning to see it all click. I think Spurs are as good as any team in this league. The, the one question mark I put on them still is when you have young players, particularly young English players, we all know this, everybody listening to this pod knows this, they, event, they hit a wall generally in 38-game seasons. And none of these guys, with the exception of Eric Dyer, have played an entire season in the Premier League. That includes Harry Kane. Harry Kane didn't play the first however many games last season or didn't, wasn't, a, wasn't a regular starter. So will they hit a wall at a certain point? Now, if they do, that would affect this season and maybe they finish third or fourth or fifth. But next season, going to next season, they would probably, we don't know what's going to happen transfer-wise, but they've got to be one of your title favorites. Hmm. Lawrence, you drew a parallel uh, earlier in the show between Tottenham and Liverpool, comparing mm. them. They look like the two teams that are going to uh, challenge for what was Chelsea's spot last year in the top four. Uh, how would you assess the strengths and the weaknesses of those two teams right now? Uh, the strengths being that they both uh, love to press um, uh, in very different ways, actually. Um, and uh, there's going to be tactical nuance there. Gagan pressing is one form of pressing. The kind of pressing is more of a, I want to say more of a wave kind of pressing, but I haven't done the kind of analysis which probably required there. Um, but then I would also say that Harry Kane is a wonderful focal point for this side. But not only that, you'd say that this is a team with a classic spine. The opposite at Liverpool this week <laughs> didn't have any of the spine that people would often point out within that side. Um, uh, the the thing the thing I'd say, I mean, if you were to pick out what you'd say is a weakness for Spurs, 
it's that they seem to be able to be neutralized by certain kinds of teams. And that's what we were picking out with Manchester United earlier. And I'd worry about the same with Liverpool. And you'd say they're going to have to find a pragmatic way to play around that. Liverpool's pragmatism, you'd imagine, comes from Klopp talking about the character and the but not not character. Wait, no, that was the previous manager coming from the uh, attitude or whatever you want to say. The spirit, the Kloppness uh, of the side. Yeah, spirit Kloppness of the side. Um, and euphoria. With yeah, yeah, yeah. So, great, there's so yeah. many words being thrown around with Klopp right now. And then. Um, and then the 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 equivalent of that over with Pochettino would be the Pochettinoisms of this team, which almost seem to be football truisms, which is like work hard, believe in yourself, and you will be be this. It it almost seems uh, like some sort of a motivational teddy bear is managing Spurs because he a looks like a teddy bear, and b he is sort of a lot of he seems very pure. If if you know what I mean by that. Um, but he's far from that. I actually think he's very cynical in the way that he looks at the Premier League, and I think that works perfectly for this Spurs team. I, I have to be honest. I think um, Andre Villas-Boas was done a disservice by Spurs, and I'm glad they're showing Pochettino, who I love as a manager and have touted for years also, along with our former colleague Chris, Chris Hennage, uh, that they're giving him the same luxury, uh, they're giving him the luxury of time and patience with youth that they didn't give Villas Bosch because I think if AVB had been left to his own devices, he would have brought he would have done something similar with Spurs. Instead of what happened is uh, Franco Baldini came in, spent a lot of money, spent the bail money on a lot of players AVB didn't want, journeyman players in in many cases, and AVB got four months after that and and was gone. I think the the early returns from Villas Bosch's first season at Spurs were very good, and the second season might have looked like this had they not messed around with the director of football and all those sorts of things. Hmm. Yeah. I think the one thing about Villas Boas that we, we have to keep in mind, particularly now, is those veteran Chelsea players are cycling out of that locker room. And uh, as Frank Lampard was on Sky a couple of weeks ago, willing to at least allude to the fact that communication between the manager and the playing staff was horrible. And so we can look at the results and we can see that, geez, maybe AVB should have been given more, some more time here. But AVB seems to have a track record where the behind the scenes stuff that we don't see and we don't get reported on do do matter a lot. So I'm yeah, kind of with you, Karthik. I'm kind of with you, but also I keep that in the back of my mind. We're going to talk about Spurs a lot more next segment, which this is a good time to break right now. We're going to have our top fours. It's going to be very interesting to see where Spurs are on those lists. We'll also talk about Italy for a little bit, but then we're going to get to Everton. We're going to get to Aston Villa, and we're going to get to Chelsea getting back in the win column. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. We talked about Spain last segment. Let's talk about the rest of Europe now. We're still updating you on France, mostly because we haven't thought of another league to put here. Uh, predictably, PSG won. They're now 13 points up on Leon and Kahn, who are tied in second place. Germany, Bayern won again, but the news here is Dortmund were upset by Hamburg on Friday. The gap at the top of the Bundesliga for the defending champs is eight points. Wolfsburg is five points behind Dortmund, with Hertha Berlin claiming the last German Bundesliga spot, uh, Champions League spot right now. And in Italy, Napoli and Fiorentina are tied at the top of the table, pending the Inter result. Inter is playing right now as we record. But the big story this week in Italy was Juventus versus Milan, and Kartik, I hate to do this to you because I I don't want anybody to have to admit that they watched this game, but Juventus won nil. What did you think about the game at uh, Juventus Stadium? It was terrible to watch, and I have to say, I ended up watching it because the Classico conflicted with 
the Man City game, so I obviously picked the Man City game. Everybody on this pod would know I would do that. Mm-hmm. And then NBC didn't have a post-game show uh, because they had some other event. They ran off to that. They were no nothing else interesting to watch. And rather than go back and watch the DVR of the Classico, I flipped the channel and watched the Juventus game. My just, loss. Yeah, My I goodness. Thought, it's two hours I'll never get back. I just thought this game was just so dull. I watched it on tape, um, and I watched it right after watching the Classico. We're just so much quality on the field, even though some of that quality was very bad. Uh, I just thought this game was defined by a couple things. One in the second half, uh, Allegri switches his formation, goes to wing backs, that ends up creating the goal. And secondly, Juventus just has better players, and Diabola and Pogba, along with Alexandro, helped create the goal. But as far as the actual product, it, this kind of summed up Italy right now. The, the big teams in Italy that people want to watch are just not very very kind on the eye right now. Right. There's some very interesting teams to watch in this league. I think Fiorentina is great to watch, personally. But the teams that you would think of, the, the Milans, the, uh, the Juves, the Inters, even Roma hasn't been very good to watch this year, quite frankly. And they, they were, they've been good to watch since uh, Luis Garcia got there the, the, the previous three seasons or whatever. So uh, it's, uh, it's a tough league. The Lazio's been terrible to watch this season. Hmm. It's been a, it's a bad league to watch your high-profile teams. But like all leagues, sometimes your best games involve uh, a lesser sides. Absolutely. Well, let's get back to the Premier League. Time for our top fours. I'll go ahead and go first, gentlemen. Uh, on form, I have Spurs. I'm going to put Liverpool, too, even though they had a slip recently against Crystal Palace. But uh, the performance this weekend, I have to search them up. Then I have Leicester. And I'm going to put Everton here. Uh, even though something in the back of my head says that I'm being a little bit harsh on Manchester United, not giving them this spot merely because I think they're capable of more. But my top four on form will be Spurs, Liverpool, Leicester, and Everton. My four at the end of the season is the same as it's been pretty much for a month now. It's City, Arsenal, United, and Spurs, despite the slips for those top two teams. And Liverpool is so close to Spurs on that list for me. Lawrence? Good question. Uh, let's go... This weekend, it's got to go Leicester, Liverpool. No, yeah, Leicester, Liverpool, Spurs, <laughs> Manchester United. Okay, and uh, you're in the, the season, quite different. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go City, United, Arsenal, Liverpool. Oh, it's so tough. I, yeah. I get the feeling, Kartik, that I'm going to be the, ironically, I guess, not ironically, but strangely, um, I'm going to be the last person with faith in Arsenal. I still have them second. I get the feeling that you're going to push them down a little bit. But give us your That's top four. Yeah, am I going to push them out of the top four? I have to make a decision in the next two seconds. <laughs> um, I, I'm going uh, on form one, Spurs, two, Leicester, three, three, Man, uh, three Liverpool, four, for Man United, let's say. And then on uh, on uh, at the end of the season, I'm going one Manchester United. Oh, my gosh. Two Manchester City, three Spurs, four Arsenal. They always find a way, right? But they, they I wasn't on the show earlier when you guys discussed Arsenal. This was so typically Arsenal. And with Colquhoun, uh, Colquhoun now injured, I just think nothing has changed. And even though the Premier League is not as strong, at the top, as it's been in previous years, when Arsenal has finished third or fourth every season, it just seems like they are more likely to find a way to finish third or fourth than to find a way to finish first or second. The one thing we did say that's really relevant to your prediction is it's very scary that Manchester United is higher on the table than their main title challengers when you have a Louis van Gaal team that 
historically his teams perform best late winter into spring. And so yeah. you have to think Manchester United's best games are still to come and they are above City and they're above Arsenal. That's, that's gonna it, be ha- it happened last season too. Let's not forget that at this point in the season last year, we were saying, well, there's really no difference between Von Hall's United and Moyes uh, United. And then by the time they came out of winter, we said, okay, this is a, this is a completely different team. He's transformed them. So if we have that same narrative this season, they will win the title. Let's start getting through the other games. Gentlemen, Chelsea, back into the win column, one to nothing victory at Norwich. Uh, Kartik, Costa got on the board. It took them an hour to do it. Uh, I think a lot of people probably aren't going to be too impressed given it's one nothing victory against Norwich at home. But for a team that just needs points, it is at least some positive news. Yeah, and I thought Hazard played really well in this game. I watched a lot of this game, and, and I felt like he he showed an energy and a willingness to get after it, and and even a willingness to track back that we're not used to seeing from him. So he's trying to play out of his slump and whatever his personal friction is with Mourinho. As far as the rest of the and Costa scoring is important, right for his confidence. As far as the rest of the Chelsea side, I, I don't have much to say. I don't think they were very good. But again, if Hazard is good and Hazard plays like he did on Saturday, Chelsea will win a lot of games and be back in the conversation maybe for the top four. It, it, statistically, and, and Richard, you know this, obviously I wrote a piece for World Soccer Talk last week that said statistically it's going to be very difficult for them to finish fourth, but based on where the number of points they're going to need per game. But they, they might get back into that conversation or maybe maybe make a run in, in, in Europe if Hazard plays this well. Mm. Lawrence, let me ask you about a game that I'm sure not a lot of people watch given the action uh, elsewhere around the league. Mm. Swansea and Bournemouth finish 2-2. Bournemouth, like we've talked about the last few weeks, is just a team that is utterly decimated. They jump out to an early 2-0 lead at Liberty Stadium. It just seems very indicative of where this Swansea team is going, a Swansea team where their manager is now openly talking about the possibility of uh, his job being in jeopardy. Yeah, which is kind of strange, isn't it? Do you really believe that that job should be in jeopardy right now? I don't think so. And I think they moved on from Loudra, um even though they were pretty low on the table when they moved on to him, they moved on from for a number of reasons that wouldn't apply to Gary Monk, who you would think they would be very loyal to. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I also kind of, I wonder about what, what it would serve for them to change his position so quickly and whether sometimes I think if a board or a club was to publicly come out and sort of back their manager and say, you know, we think some of the players haven't been performing here, such as John Joe Shelby in that midfield, then <laughs> I just wonder what kind of message it sends to the players that there's got to be a level of professionalism there, a level of personal self, uh, professional self-respect, yeah. and that you can't continue to you know just say, well, it's the manager, you know, he's lost the he's lost the dressing room or whatever it is. I I just I don't know. I I, I think that's what makes maybe the likes of Pochettino who doesn't speak very much, and Klopp who speaks a lot but is very good at spinning the press back on themselves. Uh, maybe a different level of manager right now. Hmm. One, one quick thing about this is there's also a takeaway from this game that Swansea's first goal was clearly offsides, and yeah. the second goal was a controversial penalty call. So, again, the thought thinking is that Bournemouth, who is decimated, has four of maybe their five best players injured right now, went to the Liberty Stadium and, and, and basically beat them. 
Mm-hmm. At least outplayed them, or didn't need the didn't need some fortune that Swansea got. Uh, Kartik, I want to talk to you about the result at St. Mary Stoke. Get an early goal from Bojan Kirkic. Get a result that we're seeing Stoke get every once in a while now. I don't think we think they're playing great, but Mark Hughes, much like Tony Pulis at West Brom, is getting results. Uh, at the same time, two weeks ago, we were very high on where Ronald Koeman had gotten his Southampton team actually comparing the level that they're at to where they were last year when they were challenging in the top part of the table. Were we too eager to um, too eager to put Saints back on the pedestal that they that they were at last year? Yeah, I can't get a good feel for the Southampton team. Can you guys? I mean, obviously defensively they're mm. not as strong as they were last season, but the movement, the performances of Tadic, Pella, and Mane are so good. That just the football, not, not maybe not the goal scoring rate, but the football is still good of those three guys up front that. I, I just keep thinking Southampton's one of the better teams in this league, and then but then they get results like this, and this isn't the first result like this this season. No. And Stoke continues to get some fortuitous results without playing as well as they should. Boyan being back makes a big difference, but he he and uh, uh, Diame, who's obviously uh, uh, not Diame, sorry, Diouf, uh, Mame Diouf, who's injured now, are the only two consistent players to have attacking players to have. Everybody else has really been hit or miss, and, and more miss than hit. Yeah. The only team that scored fewer goals in the league this year than Stokes 11 is Austin Villa with 10. So that says a little bit about Stoke and also says about the resourcefulness that they're that they're using to get the points that they have. They're in 11th place. Uh, let's talk about a game that I think we want to spend a little bit more time on, Everton's 4-0 victory over Aston Villa. I, I think we all um, see the positives in Everton. We've talked about Lukaku a little bit on the show before you were on Kartik, and you obviously named Ross Barkley your player of the week. So Let's focus on Aston Villa here, gentlemen, because the premise I want to move forward with here, and I I would like for you to disagree with me because the world will be a better place if this premise is not true, but what I'm seeing from Villa right now, Lawrence, is a team that, unless they improve, we're going to start talking about them with the Sunderlands and Derby County teams that kind of set the low mark for Premier League performance in the short history of this league. This team is on pace for something like 13 or 14 points right now, and that's even counting the three points they got on match day one. So they're actually trending away from that number. And although they have Remy Gard in, I don't see the quality in this team or the solutions right now to let me think that they're going to even challenge for 30 points this year. What what I wonder is, I, just to counter what you're saying, uh, would it be that maybe they've listed the matches that they think they're going to do well in? And so I think some of those players are almost mentally banking some of those. And I just wonder whether there are certain games where they just give up. That's but I get, obviously that's a very bad way to approach it because basically what you're then saying is we're banking on these games going well for us. And, you know, that momentum is no longer a thing or that, you know, team belief is one of those things. And also that, you know, fan belief isn't one of those things. And it's kind of getting rid of all of the differentials almost in a, in a playing style and just playing down to the essentials. But once you then just go down to the essentials, you really are at the bare bones and you can't you can't go much lower than that. I think that's the problem with Villa at the moment is that that's pretty much representation of the way that their approach was. And it's only now that they're building up from the bare bones after they deconstructed all the mistakes that they've made over a very long term of investment and bringing the wrong people in and uh, not having a staff who necessarily serve the club particularly well in terms of where they wanted to go with the club. Mm. Only now are they realizing that. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, this was an approach that Kartik was speaking about a lot of clubs taking just a few seasons ago. Is it good to drop and come back up or is it good to just be up? What are your thoughts on that, Kartik? 
I think in the case of Sunderland, I've said for a couple of years now, it would be better if they dropped and came back up. I think Villa, it's, it's hard to accept it for Villa because Villa has never been in our lifetimes in that position, right? They're an established top flight club. They're one of only seven clubs that have not been relegated since this league began, since the Premier League began. So the era, the modern era, if you want to call it that. But it, I think in order to clear the decks and to get out of this malaise they're in, they probably do need to drop. And I think at this point, it's inevitable they're going to drop. The, the big issue, I think, a few seasons ago was that when Lambert came in and Lerner cut back on, on spending, they put a lot of faith in the players that they had at the club, the younger players they had at the club, and spent some money on other younger players that could supplement those the, those guys and guys like all brighton didn't really work out for them and had to move on and mm. you you see and then fabian delph a guy who did work on work out for them got poached by one of the top clubs so they were in this position where they could never solidify that team and that philosophy isn't going to isn't going to sustain them and now they've essentially got a championship level team in the premier league this season mm. and so they, they're going to have to drop <sighs> that's that's incredibly sad. And it's also pretty sad to think that during this transition to a new manager, things could actually aesthetically, even results-wise, get worse before it gets better. So I think it's going to be a long winter for that part of Birmingham. Uh, midweek action, I guess Monday isn't exactly midweek, but we have Crystal Palace and Sunderland. Sunderland, I think we're still looking for some reason to think that uh, Salomon Allardyce has got them to a level where they can expect to get points from matches like these. Most attention is going to be paid to Champions League. Let's start with Tuesday. Kartik Arsenal is hosting Dinamo Zagreb. If they take six points, Olympiacos doesn't get any points from their last two games, which is a possibility considering they go to Bayern and then they host Arsenal. Arsenal remarkably goes through to the next round. How likely do you think that is? Oh, not necessarily. They're going to have to score. A... They're going to have to outscore them by a certain number, too. Yeah. Right, yeah. And, and I think they're going to need a couple, certain number of away goals if they don't outscore them right. by a certain number, right? Because they, uh, they basically need to, was... Yeah, they need to basically turn around that, uh, what was it, a 2-1 loss? 3-2. 3-2 loss it, at home. It? It's so a winnable loss. Need... They need to win by two goals, and if they don't, then the away goals will come into play. Right. Um, right. So it's it's not only that they have to win. Um, they need if they win by one, it needs to be a certain scoreline. They need a two goal win in Greece to ensure they go through. So they'll win this game. They'll probably win this game easily. Uh, Wenger has again made an issue this week of doping in football. Uh, they bet they better hope Olympiacos doesn't take a point from uh, from Bayern. Yeah, and and then again, going to Greece and winning by two goals, I don't think is that likely. But it, it leaves it's open if Olympiacos doesn't get anything from Bayern. Yeah, the other game that's on Tuesday, uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv hosting Chelsea. Chelsea wins that one, gets some help uh, from Porto against Dinamo Kiev. They can secure a spot in the round of sixteen on Wednesday. Manchester United is hosting PSV. Lawrence, Manchester United does seem to be hitting if not a stride, a certain comfort level with their baseline performance, a baseline performance that's higher than the level that they have when they went to Eindhoven and lost their first game in this group. At the same time, it's a little bit scary. They're on seven points. Wolfsburg and PSV both are on six points. It still is, I hate to use this I hate to use this cliche because it's very not specific, but there's all to play for still in this group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think within the Champions League, though, you know, when it gets to this point, it re- we speak about it like that. It really is just about every team pretty much manages their own destiny in these groups. And the more games you win, the more likely you are to go through. Bank on the fact that it's going to be you who's going to manage your own destiny. If you think about the other teams, it doesn't really matter. The ultimate goal in any group is to definitely get top because it means that you're going to 
better second round. And I think that's the important goal. Yeah. Speaking of that goal, Kartik City is already guaranteed a place in the round of 16, but the most important game of their Champions League group, they're in turn this week at Juventus. They win this game. They secure first place. They draw this game. They still control their own destiny. Uh, what are your... What are your feelings ahead of this game? How optimistic are you that Manuel Pellegrini is going to be able to get a result this week? Well, very, because I I, I don't think that uh, the performance against uh, Liverpool will, will repeat itself. And I think that performance, as we said, the historic worst performance Manchester City has ever given at home in that stadium. So basically in the modern era of the club, since the club pulled out of all these relegation scraps we were in, the worst ever performance for the club. Uh, I, you tend with bigger teams, better teams, teams that are not Arsenal tend to uh, tend to rally after those sorts of results. I point to a result in 2011. Mancini's worst game as manager was the three 0 loss at Anfield right after Kenny Dalglish had taken over, and that was the first time people talked very seriously about sacking Mancini the way some of our so-called fans are talking about Pellegrini today. Five days later at Wembley against your biggest rival a team that always wins trophies, and we had never won anything at that point. We beat them. Manchester mm-hmm. United, I'm talking about. So I, I, I see a similar kind of bounce back. Knowing Pellegrini was protecting guys. Odomendi didn't play in this game. He wanted not to play Fernandinho. He wanted not to play Fabian Delph, who he thinks will be, could be a useful supplementary midfield player against a, a tactical Italian team uh, and is, who's coming off an injury. Unfortunately, he had to play both Fernandinho and Delph for 45 minutes when he was trying to avoid that because of how bad the midfield was. But I think we're going to see a good bounce-back performance. I believe Manchester City will win this game. And if they don't, and it's a draw, keep in mind Juve has to go to Sevilla on the final match day. So City's still in very good shape. Yeah, high-stakes game for Manchester City, but one, like you allude to, they're in very good shape for seemingly preparing for it during their loss this weekend. We're going to be back next weekend. We're going to talk about the 14th round of Premier League action, one where the marquee match is going to be at the King Power Stadium, where Manchester United, second place in the league, will be visiting league-leading Leicester City. But until then, for myself, my co-host Lawrence McKenna, Kartik? Unless you're a gooner, you're enjoying your football right now. The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley and is a production of WorldSoccerTalk.com. For more information on the show, check us out at WorldSoccerTalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at WorldSoccerTalk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at LawsCast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737. And I'm at Richard Farley. 